This is tape number five in our six-tape series where I teach verse-by-verse through the book of Galatians. This tape corresponds to our old Life for Today Bible study series, tape number 106. And on this teaching, I teach from Galatians 5, verses 1 through 14. Of course, we are now beginning to finish up the book of Galatians, and I've already uh, explained a number of things about that. Uh, It's important that you, once again, put yourself in memory of that and remember the context of this. This is a very hard-hitting letter from the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, a group of people that he evangelized. He's the one that started the church there. He had tremendous results. They started in uh, the midst of a revival People were turned on to the love and the grace of God. But over a period of time, legalistic uh, Christians came in and began to start telling these Galatians that unless they started living holy and keeping certain principles of the law, that God wouldn't accept them. They started preaching that acceptance wasn't based on faith in what Jesus had done for them, but it was that plus their own goodness and their own holiness. And boy, Paul was just violent against this and has been very vocal, has said strong statements like in Galatians 3.1 that you have been bewitched, and we've already covered all of that. So with that in in mind, remember what he's been talking about. He's teaching against legalism. He's been proclaiming that we are free in Christ, and he's made a very effective case of this. And then he starts in chapter 5 and verse 1 and says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, the word therefore in this verse is tying this into what had just been said. And again, he was talking about being free from having to perform to earn God's favor. Specifically, in the fourth chapter, he had talked about likening those who want to relate to God on their own performance to the children of Hagar who were physical descendants of Abraham, but they did not receive the inheritance. They were not the promised seed. And that's what the whole fourth chapter is about. Again, I refer you to the previous tape uh, if you hadn't listened to that or if you need to refresh your memory. But because of this, nobody wants to be somebody that doesn't receive their inheritance from the Lord. We want to receive everything that's ours. Well, the only way you can do it is to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Notice also the terminology when he says stand fast here. That comes from a Greek word which literally means to persevere, stand firm, and to hold one's ground. In other words, that shows that this liberty that comes through being a Christian, through being born again, is not something that's just automatic. It doesn't function without faith on our part. The very fact that he's admonishing them to stand fast, that means like, for instance, in the United States, we have liberties that have been guaranteed us by Constitution, but that doesn't mean that there is no opposition. We've had to go to war, and we've had to fight to defend these liberties and to hold what we've got. Well, this is what this is implying. It's saying that you have to stand, you have to fight a good warfare. Satan is coming against us uh, through many ways. The primary way is deception, just like these Galatians. They had fallen prey to a false doctrine. And this was a way that Satan was coming against them. And Paul is admonishing them to get back in and to fight, to stand fast. We need to recognize that our liberty, our victory in Christ, is not something that comes without participation on our part. It does take effort 
not effort that earns it, that produces it. We don't have to fight to get free in Christ, but we have to fight because we are free. And Satan is trying to strip from us what is rightfully ours. We aren't fighting to be healed. We're fighting because we are healed, and Satan is trying to steal that healing from us. We aren't fighting to be prosperous, but we are already prosperous. It's our right. It's our inheritance. It's our spiritual constitutional right. And Satan is trying to steal from us what is ours. See, all of this is implied here. There's a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of people that just don't understand this. They think that everything works without effort, that there is no reason that we have to stand and believe God, exert any effort. If it was God's will, it would just come to pass. Paul is making that very clear that that's not so. So he says that we have to stand fast in this liberty. And the word liberty here, as defined in the New American Heritage Dictionary, it means the condition of being free from restriction or control, freedom, the right to act as one chooses, freedom from confinement or servitude. And so the liberty here that Paul is talking about, specifically the freedom, the liberty, is talking about the Old Testament law. Matter of fact, this phrase that he uses in the end of this verse about be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, that's talking about the Old Testament law. Now, we could talk about a lot of different things that are bondages in Christians' life, but the context here, Paul is admonishing these Christians. He's already made his point. He's already said you're bewitched. He's shown how that everything only comes through Christ. If you go it any other way, you are frustrating the grace of God, uh, things like this. He's already made those points. Now he's saying, now that I've told you this, you need to contend for once again fighting and getting back into a position where you're standing by faith, not based on your own holiness. You need to reject this, and you need to go back to the liberty that's in Christ. But then in this very verse... He begins to say some things. He'll follow through with this in the 13th verse even more. He says, now you're free. Don't be entangled again with this yoke of bondage. The word entangled here is interesting. In the Greek, it's actually talking about like being ensnared or held in a net. And this is the way that Old Testament law and legalism is. It's not that the things that are being said there are wrong. They're all good things. Not murdering, not killing, not coveting, not lying, etc. These are all positive things. But if you get to where you start basing your confidence that God has accepted you because you are performing and acting according to something, then it actually becomes a snare. It's a net. It's something that you get tangled up in it, and the more you struggle, the holier you try and be, the more unworthy you feel because you are actually putting your faith in yourself. And that will cut you off, and we'll deal with that here in just a moment. That will cut you off from the power of God flowing in your life. You cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. You can't be holy enough and do certain things, and then God accepts you based on what you've done. Instead, you have to come totally, like that song says, just as I am, present yourself to the Lord and say, God, I can't do it, and then let him come into you and him flow through you. And you have you experience that before you become holy. It's his life flowing through you that makes you holy. It is not holiness that makes his life flow through you. Boy, there is a huge difference between what I just said right there. Some people, that's subtle and they don't get it. But I tell you, the difference is victory and defeat. The difference is joy and peace and frustration. A person who is trying to live good enough so that God will flow in their life is going to be frustrated. They are not going to have joy and peace. 
but a person who has learned how to appropriate God's life and union with Jesus on faith, not based on performance. That person will experience God's life flowing through them, and the end result is that they will live holy. They'll live holier accidentally than they ever have on purpose before. And Paul gets into this right here in this very chapter and explains this in a lot of different ways. In verse 2 he says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now it has to be understood here that Paul is not talking about if you are circumcised that you're automatically exempt from God using you because Paul said this himself. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you. Paul himself was circumcised. You can read that over in Philippians chapter 3. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He used to, at one time, live very strictly by the law. He, he at one time, was more strict in preaching legalism than the Judaizers, the legalistic Christians, that he was speaking about here in this book of Galatians. So Paul himself was circumcised, and yet we know that Christ was profiting him something. So just by looking at the author of this, we can see that Paul here isn't saying that there's anything wrong with being circumcised. He's talking about putting faith and trust in the act of circumcision. And so it has to be understood that way. Actually, it you're missing the whole context of this if a person thinks that this is talking about circumcision. That is this physical example that Paul was using in this debate. And that's just because it was a hot issue, a topic of his time. But actually what Paul is talking about here is just putting faith in some action of holiness instead of in Christ. And it wouldn't matter today if you said that this was um, water baptism whether it was you had to take communion, whether you had to live up to a certain degree of holiness, or any of those kind of things. It doesn't matter what you substitute. He's just talking about here a person who is trusting in some action of their holiness. If a person is trusting in their church membership, and they were saying, this is what makes me right with God, that's wrong. Now, does that mean that it's wrong for you to go to a church and to unite yourself with them and be a part of what they're doing? No, the Scripture teaches that. But if you put your faith in church membership instead of in a Savior, you would go to hell. You have to have your faith in a Savior. And then there will be actions that accompany it, but those actions are a byproduct, not the means to relationship with God. You know, a very simple way to discern if you are putting your faith in some action, is to just imagine that right now you are standing before God. And if the Lord was to look at you and say, what makes you worthy to enter into heaven? If you were to start pointing under your church attendance or your giving record or your actions of holiness or all of the good things that you've done, if you pointed to those things instead of to the Savior, well, then it would show you that your faith was in those things. So see what I'm saying right now? If God was to put you on the spot, if you were standing in front of God, the Father, the Lord Jesus, the angels, all of creation, everybody who has ever lived, if you were put on the spot and said, what makes you worthy, what would you point to? Well, whatever comes to your heart first, that's what your trust is in. The proper answer would be to say that I don't have anything of myself that makes me worthy. My only claim 
to having any right to enter into heaven is the fact that I put faith in a Savior. I have a Savior. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That's my only hope of righteousness. See, that's the proper answer. Pointing to anything else, whether you've done it or not, whether it was good works or not, is not the issue. It's where is your faith? Is your faith in yourself, in something you've done, or is your faith in a Savior? That's the issue. And that's what Paul's talking about in this second verse. He says, if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. This is not saying something against circumcised, being circumcised. It's talking about putting faith in your own actions of holiness. So any person who would say, well, man, circumcision isn't an issue with me. I don't preach circumcision for salvation. But if you're preaching that you have to be water baptized to be saved, if you're preaching that a person who isn't living holy cannot be saved, God can't accept you, if you're preaching that you have to join a certain church, and uh, unless you go to this church, unless you're baptized in the name of Jesus, unless you uh, do this and this and this, and you preach that you have to do those things for God to accept you, you have totally missed the point of what Paul's saying. You could just put your own pet doctrine in right here and say that if you are doing these things, then Christ will profit you nothing. And there are people who have this exact same attitude. Circumcision isn't an issue today. Paul so completely prove this in Acts chapter 15 here in the book of Galatians. Also, he dealt with this a number of other places in Ephesians, and and it just was dealt with so conclusively, Romans chapter 4, that it's not an issue today. You don't hear Christians arguing over that. But the same principle, the same uh, fact that people are trusting in certain works of the law and trusting in themselves instead of putting their total trust in God, that still is functional today. It's still a major problem in the body of Christ. And so don't stumble over the the word circumcision here. He's just talking about putting faith in something other than the Lord Jesus. And if you do that, it says that Christ shall profit you nothing. Boy, this is a strong statement, super strong statement. You know, if you turn a verse around lots of times and look at what it says the results will be, and then you you either identify with that or don't. In other words, what I'm saying is sometimes if you will say, is Christ profiting me nothing? Am I really seeing benefit from my union with Christ in my life? And you look at it that way, then if you if you could say, well, you know, there's really a lot of areas in my life that Christ didn't profit in me anything. I mean, there's some people probably listening to this tape who you can't tell any difference between you and your unsaved neighbor. Maybe you have sickness exactly the same or even more so than your unsaved neighbor. Maybe you are are just as poverty-stricken or even more poverty-stricken. Maybe you have just as much anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart as lost people that you know. Maybe you are uh, fearful and struggling with all kinds of emotional problems, more so than even unbelievers. See, what that is, that's Christ profiting you nothing. You may have prayed and asked the Lord into your heart, but look at what the results are. Can you really see the results of Christianity in your life? Now, I'm not, again, talking about perfection. Every one of us, if you want to just get totally critical, could say that there's some area of our life that we haven't appropriated completely. There's always more that we could get. But I'm saying just be honest. Is there really any evidence? You know, I've heard it said this way before, that if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Some of you need to ask yourself that. Well, if you would have to say, well, man, I'm not sure that there is. 
then Christ is not profiting you the way that you're supposed to. So what does that mean? Well, if you just back up in this verse, it'll tell you what happens. A person who is not seeing Christ profit them, if they are not seeing the benefits of their salvation in their life, then I can promise you that one of the things involved is that you are trusting in some something other than Christ. In this verse, he says, if you're trusting in your circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. But like I said, uh, today, circumcision may not be the issue, but maybe you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your own holiness. You've got this mindset that if I'll just be good enough, then God will use me. That will actually stop the power of God from operating in your life. And I know that there's probably some people listening to this who just don't understand what I'm saying. Because you're thinking, but wait a minute, I've got to be holy or God won't move in my life. That type of thinking is what Paul is dealing against, is speaking against. That's what I'm speaking against. I'm not saying that it's not good to do the right things, but your trust in those things, your faith, the fact that you have confidence and say, I know God's going to move in my life because I've done this and this and this, that very thing will sever you from the power of God. Now, that's an amazing statement. See, the reason for it is in verse 3. He says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised. And again, circumcision isn't the only issue. He's, he's just talking about, I'm saying to every person who is trusting in themselves or in something that they do that makes them right, that gives them pull and leverage with God, to every person like that, that you are a debtor to do the whole law. See, the same thing is said this way in James chapter 2, verse 10. It says that if any person... Uh, keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he becomes guilty of everything. See, there are literally thousands and thousands of commandments in the Word of God. And a person who keeps 99 out of 100 actually fails. It's not just do the best you can. He's saying here that if you're going to trust your performance and adherence to Old Testament law, commands, legalisms, do this and do this, if you're going to do that, then you have to keep all of them. And he's already made this point very clearly in the third chapter where he says that, that you have to do everything that's contained in there. He quotes back to Deuteronomy chapter 27 in the very last verse where it puts a curse on a person who doesn't do every last detail of the law. Nobody could ever fulfill that other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So any person who is trusting in their own performance in some manner of some degree of holiness is a person that's going to be under a curse. You're never going to have confidence. You're never going to have boldness. You're never going to feel like you've arrived because you won't arrive in your own actions. The only way you will ever be able to obtain peace with God, whether that's talking about the initial born-again experience or if it's talking about a day-to-day -day victory in your relationship, is by putting faith in what Jesus has done and just accept peace with God as a gift, not as a payment. Boy, that is a big difference. In verse 4, he says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, see, this terminology in the fourth verse is really the critical issue. It's not the matter of circumcision or water baptism or church attendance or living holy. None of those things are wrong in themselves. They're all good things. But it's when you seek to be justified in the sight of God through doing these things. See, it's not that the law is bad. If a person could keep the law and do what the law says, that would be just great. 
Where the law becomes a stumbling block is when a person seeks to be justified by keeping the law. The word justify, once again, my layman's definition is just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, never sinned. And so a person who is seeking to be clean in the sight of God through their performance is always going to fall short. And so that's what's wrong with the law. If a person is trying to use it to earn relationship with God, then Christ is become of no effect unto you. Can you understand why that is? It's because if you are trusting Jesus and saying, Father, the only hope that I have, my total faith, my total confidence is in my Savior, Jesus, and in what he did for me. You can't put total faith in Jesus and then put faith in your actions too. See, that's, you're mixing your faith. Your faith cannot be directed in two different areas at the same time. You're either going to have to trust Jesus and what he's done, or you're going to have to trust you and what you've done, And but you can't have a combination of the two. That's what Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says, that you're either saved by grace without works, otherwise grace is no more grace, or you're saved by works without grace, otherwise works is no more works. That's just old English for saying you're saved by grace or by works, but not by a combination of the two. It has to be one or the other. And, of course, the only true way to be born again is through grace, putting faith in God's grace, because none of us can ever work or earn enough. And so this is what he's saying in the fourth verse. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, does this mean that you... Uh, are not born again? Is this talking about any person who ever gets a legalistic uh, attitude, ever falls back into trusting in their own self, loses their salvation? No, 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 I do not believe that that is what this is talking about. The New American Standard translates this verse this way. It says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You know, in the same way that you could understand how damaging it could be to have an arm or a leg severed, what that would mean to your physical body. Think what it means to be severed from Christ. It's not talking about that you are eternally damned. If a person has truly been born again, falling back into legalism does not eternally damn you, but it should be taken more this way. It's talking about, uh, for instance, here's the way that the... uh, Unger's Bible study handbook uh, relates it. It says, you have put yourself in a place where God cannot be good to you or show you his kindness. You know, over in, uh, I believe it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, the scripture there says that if you totally renounce the Lord, if you deny the Lord, he will deny you. But if you believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. And I've already dealt with this before in this uh, Bible series. I won't go back into detail, but a person who simply gets confused and stumbles and falls back into legalism, which it's very easy to do because there's nobody preaching grace very much. Not even many Christians preach it, but certainly in the world, everybody deals with you based on performance. And if you aren't careful, it's easy to fall back into a legalistic mentality. And when you fail, just you, you immediately think, how could God love me? And you can get out of faith. You can fall into deception in an area. Well, a person who does that, the scripture says, if you believe not yet he abides faithfully, he cannot deny himself. But if a person was just to totally renounce the Lord, well, then that's a different matter. This is just describing a person. These Galatians that Paul was writing to here 
were people who had been deceived. They were still seeking relationship with God. They were seeking to be good Christians, but they had fallen back into the deception of thinking that their Christianity, their relationship was based on their own goodness and their own performance. And that is not uh, true. But in this situation, Paul is not speaking about this Armenian doctrine of losing your salvation. He's just talking about that you have turned from God's grace when you start trying to trust in your own performance, and you immediately exempt yourself from the grace of God. God's grace is still extended. It's not that he's withdrawn it and that you lose your salvation. This is talking about a person who has removed themselves out from under grace. They're going to reap what they sow. They're going to, if they start thinking, oh, I've got to be holy, and, and unless I'm holy, God won't move in my life, a person like that is going to experience failure and defeat. You're going to start reaping what you sow. And there's a lot of scriptures that talk about that. So in the fifth verse, he says, for we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, again, Paul had been talking throughout this entire book about that uh, we receive everything by faith and not through works. It's by God's grace, and all we have to do is put faith in it. So in context, he's talking about, he's just going back and reminding them, he says, we're waiting on the hope of our righteousness by faith. You've fallen back into legalism. You aren't in faith. You're in performance. You're into legalism. You're into works. He says, we're operating in faith, and he's reminding them of this. Now, some people may ask about, wait, I thought you've been talking about through this whole thing about that we're already righteous. Well, that's true in our spirit. Our spirit is already righteous. It's been born again righteous, and I've got a lot of footnotes here, uh, references that will show you some of those footnotes about that. But our soul and our body are still in the process of being changed. Our spirit is instantly changed, but our soul and our body are yet to be changed. So there still is a future tense aspect to our salvation. One-third of our salvation, our spirit, is already complete. It's righteous and truly holy, Ephesians 4.24. But there still is other benefits to come of our salvation. When we go to be with the Lord, or if we are alive when he comes, we will be instantly changed. Our soul will know all things, even as also we are known. Our physical body will be changed into a glorified body. And so there still is a hope, future tense, part to righteousness, and that's what Paul is referring to here in this fifth verse. In the sixth verse, it says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And again, I want to just point this out, that even though circumcision is the word and the issue that Paul is dealing with, the real bottom line of this goes beyond the act of circumcision. Circumcision is not an issue with us today because Paul already dealt with it. But there are still other legalistic works. You could say here that uh, water baptism doesn't avail anything. You could say church attendance doesn't avail anything. You could say that your own holiness, your paying your tithes, and on and on, doesn't get, make you any better off than anybody else. It's not your works of righteousness that make you in right standing with God. The thing that produces victory in the Christian life is faith which works by love. No other act of holiness is necessary for salvation other than faith which works by love. 
And I tell you, that's important. Again, a person who didn't understand this and they thought all he's talking about is circumcision could read over this passage of Scripture and yet continue in the very legalistic attitude that Paul is preaching against here. Is your only hope in the Lord Jesus, not only for the initial born-again experience, but I mean for every day situation. Are you allowing Satan to condemn you because you haven't done this and haven't done that? Well, if you are, then you are not truly operating in faith, which works by love. And because of that, Christ is profiting you nothing. It doesn't avail anything. The only thing that works is when we put our total faith, our total trust in the Lord Jesus and not in ourself alone. In verse 6 here, Paul is also saying when it says that faith works by love, there's two ways that you can take this. Uh, One translation, the NIV translation, says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So one way to interpret this phrase is to say that this is talking about that faith always will manifest itself in some action of love. But also a way that I use this often, and I believe it is correct, it's definitely a scriptural principle, is to look at this and says that faith always is the is the result or it's what makes faith work or love is what makes faith work. Faith is a result, a byproduct of love. And if you just think about this, this is the way it is in human relationships. If you really know that a person loves you, and if it was a God kind of love, the type of love that would actually cause a person to lay down their life for your sake, if you get that convinced of a person's love for you, then it's easy to have faith in them, to trust them, to rely upon what they say. But a person that hates you, a person that you knew was out to get you, you wouldn't trust them. You wouldn't commit yourself to them. You wouldn't take something of value that's your possession and give it unto them. You know why? Because faith, trust, reliance upon a person really is tied to the to the way that you think that that person loves you. So a person who is trying to believe God literally just needs a revelation of how much God loves them. If we truly understood how much God loves us, we would just automatically trust him and have faith in him. A person who is struggling and saying, oh, God, I'm trying to believe that you're going to move in my finances and provide this need. But you're struggling with it and it's hard for you to believe. You could just come back and say, God, I really am not. I don't have the revelation of how much you love me. If I really knew how much you love me, I would not struggle with uh, you meeting this need. You know, I've given examples a lot of times. I've probably used this uh, in sometime during this uh, commentary series. But there was a real noticeable example of this not long after my wife and I were married. We were living in Dallas uh, in some apartments there. And I was trying to do what God had called me to do. I knew I was called a minister. And I just wasn't seeing the doors open up. And so I thought one of the things that would make the doors for ministry open up is for me to quit my job and just go full-time with what God told me to do. I was going to be totally in faith. Well, in retrospect, I don't believe that that was accurate. I believe I should have uh, still been working and making a living and just let God open up the doors. But anyway, my heart was right. I think my head was wrong, but my heart was right. And because of that, I was in a situation where my wife and I were literally struggling for food. We couldn't pay our rent, and food was also a problem. We had been weeks without eating, 
And when I say weeks without eating, some people, that means that you weren't able to get all the pies and the steaks and the things that you want. I mean, we literally had gone weeks without eating. Finally, I had a guy come over and give me a case of Cokes and some Fritos. He drove a a Coke truck, and he just brought me in some Cokes, and uh, he had some Fritos with him, and he just gave those to us. So we rationed these out, and for a few days we'd been eating Cokes and Fritos. But basically for two weeks, we hadn't eaten a decent meal. And it was getting to a point where it was really wearing on us. We were trying to stand in faith, but it was evident something wasn't working. And my wife, she was, she's a blessing. I tell you, she's gone through some hardships that I put her through. It wasn't really God's will. It was me that put her through it. And um, she's never complained. She's been a blessing. But I could tell this was getting to her. And finally, one day, I just couldn't stand it anymore. She took our last little bit of change and put some clothes in our car and drove over to the washeteria that was in our apartment complex to wash the clothes. And while she was gone, I mean, I was upset. And I was saying, God, this isn't right. I'm supposed to provide for Jamie, and I'm, you know, I'm not working because I'm called to minister, which was a mistake. But nonetheless, I was convinced at the moment that that was the way it was supposed to be. And I said, God, something's not right. I said, I'd give my right arm to feed Jamie. And basically what I was doing was impugning God's character and saying that if you really loved us as much as I love Jamie, you'd do something to meet our needs. And so basically I was saying, God, it's like you don't love us. And boy, as soon as I said that, it just dawned on me. I mean, the Holy Spirit showed me how totally wrong I was to say something like that. And Scripture started coming to my mind like, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 32, where it says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I saw that God is actually pleased to prosper me. And then in Psalms chapter 35, verse 27, the scripture says, Let God be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And then Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. And as these scriptures just flooded through my heart, all of a sudden I began to see that I had literally allowed this situation to move me away and and kind of convince me based on circumstances that God didn't love me. And see, faith works by love. Faith only functions properly when love is present. If you are just trying to believe God out of nothing but anger or bitterness, if you don't have a revelation of God's love for you, I promise you, you aren't really in the high form of faith. Faith isn't working properly because true faith is a result, a byproduct, and a, a reaction to love. And so as God began to show me how much he loved me, all of a sudden, I humbled myself, I repented, and then faith just flooded me. I mean, I had been trying to believe God prior to this time, But once I really got to thinking about how much God loved me, and I got to thinking about how he loved me so much he died for me, then immediately there was faith there for finances. And I I broke down, started praising God and thanking him. I mean, it wasn't a struggle anymore. I wasn't trying to force faith. It just flowed because love was flowing. Once love flowed, faith flowed. And I told my wife when she got back from washing clothes that we would have meat to eat that day. Well, it's a long story, but we did eat meat that day. Before midnight, we had a guy give me, I don't know, uh, I don't know how much, maybe 20 or 30 fish that somebody had given him. He gave me the uh, 
potatoes to go along with it and other things. Jamie and I came home, fixed it, and just a few minutes before midnight, we finally ate some meat and had a full meal. And then the next day was my birthday, and I had a person give me an entire case, box load, of porterhouse steaks. I mean, we went from famine to feast overnight, and the thing that broke it was this revelation that God loved me. As a matter of fact, the man who gave me this fish told me later, he said that I sent my wife by to give you that food. I told her to do it that day, and she went by your apartment, but your car wasn't there, so she didn't even stop because she knew that you must not be there. Well, the only time that that car was gone all day long is when my wife took those clothes over to the washeteria when I was in that apartment praying and God gave me a revelation of this love. I mean, at that exact moment, our needs were meant. It just took us maybe 12 hours to be able to receive that supply. But I tell you, this is a real key. If somebody's struggling in the area of faith, if you're trying to struggle and believe that God's going to heal you, but you're having trouble, what you need to do is just go back and really ask God for a revelation of his love. Start studying scriptures about how much God loves you. And you'll come to the conclusion, like in Romans chapter 8, I believe it's verse 32 or 33, it's right around there. It says, if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you can understand how much God's love has been commended towards you, then anything else that you need to receive in your life, it'll just come automatically once you go to really walking in God's love. So in this sixth verse, when it says that faith works by love, I think you can interpret that to say that faith always expresses itself through love. But yes, that's true. But you can also say that faith is a byproduct of understanding God's kind of love. A person that is struggling in the area of faith is a person who is struggling in the area of believing that God loves them. Love is a key. I've got a tape out entitled, The Key to Being Full of God, and it's a tape about love based on Ephesians chapter 3, about verse 18 and 19. So this is a real key. I tell you, a person who's trying to learn faith and yet doesn't know love is a person that can be very obnoxious, a person who can become very legalistic. But when you temper faith and love together, when you balance them out like this, I tell you, it makes a huge difference in the way that you receive from God. So that's a powerful truth. In verse 7, he said, you also, uh, or excuse me, he said, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Now here Paul is using a metaphor. He's drawing an illustration and saying that the Christian life for these Galatians is like a race. And they started off the race good. They were headed in the right direction. They were running good. Man, they were running to win. But somebody hindered them. It would be very similar to somebody running a race, and then somebody else comes up and trips them, or either uh, you know gets to talking to them, and they look to the side, and they get out of the lane or off of the track. Or somebody in the grandstands yelling at them, and they get upset and go into the grandstands, and they start arguing. It doesn't matter if they win the argument. They're going to lose the race. Paul is saying things like this. He says that, you know, at one time you were running the race well, but you've been hindered. And, of course, who he's talking about are these legalistic Jews that came in and started saying that you can't only trust grace. You also have to live holy. Specifically, you have to be circumcised or you can't be born again. And in verse 8, he says, This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. This is just a way of saying, I can guarantee you the one who hindered you was not God. 
God is not the one who has you occupied with these thoughts about circumcision, legalistic things, all of the things that you must do. And so if it's not God who is inspiring these Judaizers, the legalistic Jews that came through, well, then that's just a subtle way of saying it was the devil. Satan is the one that's using these people. So Paul is saying at one time you were going right, but you've been deceived. And who was it that deceived you? I can guarantee you it's not God. So therefore, the option is it's the devil using these people. That's the point that he's making. And then in verse 9, he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, of course, leaven is just um, yeast is all he's talking about. And he's, again, using a metaphor. He's, he's drawn on a practical illustration. This is like Jesus taught by parables. And in the same way as yeast, you know, you just put a little bit into the dough and you leave it there and the whole thing, it just spreads and multiplies and it begins to grow. And the entire loaf gets leavened out of just a very little, uh, um, um, small amount of yeast. Well, Paul is saying the same thing. He says, this may be small. They may have come in and, have, you know, not countered everything that Paul said. They didn't say throw out everything, but they've just snuck in this one little thing. He says it's going to be like leaven or yeast. It's going to spread throughout the entire body. It's got the potential of corrupting and totally turning you away from Christ so that you cease to benefit from his grace and from the love that he's extended towards you. And so he says here that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The point is that, hey, you cannot just take legalism in one area and say the rest of these areas, I'm trusting God by grace. No, you either have to go with grace totally or you have to go with works totally, but you cannot go with the combination of the two. I find people that do this a lot. You know, in the area of salvation, they know that they are saved by grace. But then when it comes to, like, finances, they believe that, boy, if you don't tithe, you're cursed with the curse based on Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, and they come back into legalism where they feel like they've got to give. It's a debt. It's an obligation. If I don't do this, the wrath of God's coming upon me. And I haven't got time to teach on that. I do have a tape entitled The Tithe that goes into that and explains it. But see, you can't take legalism in that one area and then operate in everything else by grace. No, it has to be consistent. It has to be across the board. There is no area that we can prosper in our relationship with God through works and through law. It's got to be grace in every area of our life. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. You know, Paul had already expressed doubt about these Galatians. He says, I stand in doubt of you. I don't know where you stand and where you're really headed. That's in Galatians 4.20. But here he's saying, I have confidence in you through the Lord. In other words, in the natural, when he just looked at it from a natural standpoint, he really wasn't sure whether these Galatians were going to take this legalism to the point that it actually caused them to renounce their salvation uh, in a Savior, their faith in a Savior, and get to where they start trusting in themselves totally. In the natural, that's the way he felt. But he's saying here, in the Lord, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. In other words, even though there was reason for concern, and in the natural he may have had thoughts, ultimately he believed that uh, the work that he had planted in them, the spirit within them, would prevail. And he believed that they would come back and walk in grace. And so he says, You will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. You know, th this is an apparent contradiction. 
Because Paul here is preaching grace. He's preaching that God doesn't be, deal with us based on performance, etc. And then right in the midst of this, he turns around and ministers judgment. In other words, he's saying that these legalistic people who are coming in and preaching to you works and that you only get what you deserve and God won't do anything if you don't act right, etc. He says, I'm believing that those people are going to bear their own judgment, whoever they be. Now, there's two ways, once again, to take this. Maybe Paul had no maliciousness whatsoever in this statement. Maybe he just recognized it's a law that a people reap what they sow. If a person is preaching legalism, then they're going to get legalism. They exempt themselves from the grace of God, and they're just going to reap what they sow. He could have just been making an observation. But it really appears to me like that Paul here is actually wishing upon these people that they would bear their own judgment. And, you know, this isn't really inconsistent because if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus extended mercy towards a woman taken in the very act of adultery. He gave mercy to tax collectors, to publicans, sinners. Uh, You can't really find people that were living in sin that Jesus outwardly rebuked, even though he did not condone those actions and spoke against them. uh, he, He never rebuked people involved in sin except the sin of religious hypocrisy. The 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew is the most stinging rebuke that Jesus ever gave, and it was directed at the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers, the religious leaders, and the thrust of everything he said, it wasn't based on adultery, it wasn't talking about stealing, etc. It was talking about a heart attitude, and the, the sin that he was so upset with and rebuked was, was the fact that they were trusting in their own goodness. They were living holy lives. They paid tithes of mint and anise and cumin. They, pray, they prayed every day, multiple times each day. They were always at church attendance. They were doing good things. But the thing that upset the Lord was that they were trusting in themselves instead of trusting in a Savior. They, in a sense, were snubbing their nose at God's provision. God said that the only way unto righteousness with him was to accept the Messiah, to put faith in the Savior. And they were, in a sense, saying, nope, it's not the Savior. Or at the very least, they were saying, it's not only the Savior, it's also my own holiness. It's my own goodness. And these people were maintaining their own holiness instead of putting faith in a Savior. And that's what upset the Lord Jesus. Those are the only type of people that he really, really rebuked. Now, I'm not saying he condoned sin, but he didn't rebuke the sinners. The only sinners that he really came against were the religious people who were trusting in themselves. And you can see that Jesus pronounced judgment upon them. He says, man, you are the child of the devil. You can pass sea and land and do all of these things to make one proselyte. And once you make him, then once you convert him to your way of thinking, you make him twofold more the child of the devil than yourself. And he said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So Jesus pronounced judgment on people who were in self-righteousness. And it's very possible, I believe, that Paul is doing this exact same thing right here. And some people may think, well, that's inconsistent with grace. Well, I believe this, that we ought to be very, very hesitant to ever pass judgment on anybody. Actually, I've already dealt with this when we talked about Matthew chapter 18, about church judgment. There are certain times that it's commanded that leaders of church have to judge people. And so it's it's not right 
to understand grace to the point that you you never pass judgment on anybody. You never say anything negative. You never tell somebody they're wrong. That's an extreme. And the Lord actually commanded church leaders to judge things. And he said in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3 that he was going to reject these leaders because they had refused to bring judgment. And they've allowed people to do things contrary to his word. So when the scripture is saying judge not, it's not saying that you cannot judge. It's just telling you to make sure that your judgment is correct because with the same judgment that you judge others, you will be judged. Again, I refer you back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where you can read uh, some of my footnotes about that. So it's it's wrong to think that because you're ministering grace that there is never a time to rebuke a person or to say something harsh. Paul here, I believe, is saying something very harsh. He's saying these people who are telling you that God's only going to deal with you based on your performance, they're going to reap what they've sown. They're going to bear their own judgment. And, you know, that's exactly true. I've dealt with lots of people who preach legalism and preach that, man, if you aren't holy, you won't have any peace, you won't have any joy, you won't get a prayer answered if you aren't doing everything right. And the people who preach that wind up reaping their own, uh, you know, message. They, they live by what they preach. Not that God changes and deals with them differently, but they are just like Paul has been saying here. When they start trusting in themselves and their own holiness, then Christ profits them nothing. Christ becomes of none effect unto them, verses 2 and verses 4. Uh, they just get out from under grace, and all of a sudden, if they believe that they get only what they deserve, then they'll have no faith when they know that they aren't worthy. So they won't reap the grace of God. They'll only reap what they deserve. And man, these people will bear their own judgment. You know, it says that over in Hebrews chapter 13, talking about this same thing. It says that they shall bear their own judgment. And um, that's the way that it is. Legalistic people are not happy. Legalistic people are not walking in the joy of the Lord. Matter of fact, I've dealt with some people before that, you know, they have their scriptures. I had my scriptures on the grace of God, and it seems like we were getting nowhere. And one of the ways that I was able to penetrate a few of them is just to start saying, all right, you got your doctrine, I got mine. Let's look at the results. Are you happy? Do you have peace? Do you really enjoy the presence of God? Do you feel like God's pleased with you? I say, and I'll tell him, I say, I feel the pleasure of God. I actually feel that God likes me. He not only tolerates me, but he likes me. And, you know, I've been able to reach a few people because they recognize that they are not enjoying the benefits of their salvation. They aren't enjoying the very things that they're telling others that they could get if they could just be holy enough. And the reason I've approached it that way is because I know that when a person preaches legalism, that they are not going to enjoy uh, the benefits of their salvation because they'll never earn it. Their own conscience will condemn them. And so anyway, Paul here is saying that whosoever uh, troubles you, he shall bear his own judgment whosoever he be. Man, I could spend a lot of time explaining that by examples, but I think everybody understands that. In verse 11, it says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. You know, this is important because Paul here uses this word yet. He says, if I yet preach circumcision. What this is implying is that at one time Paul did preach circumcision. Again, it's not just this one issue. It's it's the broader issue of Paul at one time preached that you had to be holy, that you had to keep the Old Testament law. He didn't 
access God through a Savior, but he was his own Savior. The burden of salvation was on his own back based on his holiness and how well he performed. Paul lived that way, and Paul preached that. He preached it harder than any of these legalistic Jews that had come in and and troubled these Galatians. And so Paul is saying here, he knows whereof he's speaking. Paul is not insensitive. It's not like he hadn't really got the message. He didn't hear what they were saying. He knew exactly what they were saying. He had preached this at one time, much more so than any of them. And he says, if I was still preaching circumcision or relationship with God based on your own performance, then why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. Just think back to when Paul was legalistic, before he meant the Lord on the Damascus Road and put faith in a Savior, when he was still under this legalistic doctrine and preaching this message that he's countering here in Galatians. Was he suffering persecution then? No, he wasn't. As a matter of fact, he was the persecutor, not the persecutee, if that's the way you're supposed to say it. And see, this is the way that it always is. Legalistic people, people who are just, I mean, adamant and they're occupied with rules. They've got a relationship with rules and regulations instead of with a person. You'll find out that the legalistic people are always the ones who persecute. The ones who truly know a person are not the persecutors. Boy, this, this is real clear in our society today when you look at extreme Religious people. It doesn't matter if they're so-called extreme Christians. You'll find some Christians that are murdering abortion doctors and justifying violence. I've actually known some Christians that sanctioned, like the bombing in Oklahoma City of the uh, uh, ATF building, the federal building there, because they are against certain things. And so they justify, uh, you know, murder and killing of people and all of these kind of things. There's Christians that think that kind of thing. But without exception, the people who advocate that kind of stuff are the ones who are really into legalistic things. They have such a hatred for sin that anybody who they consider to be unholy, ungodly, they justify punishment and wrath. That's the way the Muslims are. The Muslims actually cut people's hands off and shoot people for divorce and things like this. And it's because they're legalistic. But you find a person who's really got an encounter with God, they don't love sin. But they love the people. See, it's gone beyond it's gone beyond rules and regulations. It's you know what the scripture terms over in Second Corinthians chapter three, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. They've gone beyond just looking at an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, and they're looking at the real purpose for this. God was telling us to live a certain way, not because he hated us and was looking for some opportunity to smite us. He was telling us to live holy because he loves us. And he knows that these unholy things are going to be inroads of Satan into our life. So before we got born again and before we could perceive spiritual truth, there was a time that God enforced these laws with punishment, even by death and judgment, because we couldn't understand spiritual things. Now that we're born again, and now that we can have the Spirit of God literally come within us and give us supernatural revelation, no longer do we murder somebody who's a witch. No longer do we stone a child who disobeys their parents, which the Bible says to do in the Old Testament. No longer do you just kill somebody for the matter of adultery or something like that. Now, the standards are still right. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to be rebellious towards your parents. It's still wrong to be a witch. 
But now we love those people, and through grace we extend mercy unto them. Jesus showed this very clearly. When they brought the woman in the very act of adultery unto him and tried to get him to uh, pass judgment on her and condemn her, stone her is what the law said to do. It's not that he condoned what she did, but see, he went beyond the natural, the physical things, and he looked at her heart. He dealt with her. The person was more valuable than the actions that he was dealing about. The standards weren't as important as the people. And he extended mercy and actually gave forgiveness towards her. See, that's the way that we should be. The thing that really becomes offensive when you start preaching. See, Paul here said that if I was still preaching the law, if I was still preaching performance, then there would be no offense in the gospel. But when you start preaching the gospel, that's offensive to people. You know why? Because when you preach the cross, when you preach the fact that Jesus paid it all, you couldn't pay it. Jesus paid it for you. What it does, it takes away this feeling of accomplishment that people who are trusting in their own performance have. It takes away this feeling of superiority, making them feel better than somebody else. It takes away self-righteousness. It takes away self-satisfaction. In other words, when you preach the gospel, everybody, whether you're a good person or a bad person, have to come to the Lord on the same grounds. You don't have... Because, you know, I've never said a cuss word. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. But that didn't make me any closer to God than the person who isn't a murderer or an adulterer or a rapist. I needed salvation. There isn't hell number two or hell number three. If I missed heaven, I was going to go to hell. I'd be in the exact same place with all of these people who had done things much worse by man's standards. And see, I had to come. All the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I couldn't come with any advantage over anybody else. I had to come humble myself and receive a Savior. And it is humbling to say that, well, you mean all my great living didn't give me any more pull with God than this person over here? Yep, that's what we're saying. And that's offensive to people who are trusting self-salvation, who are looking at their own accomplishments to give them an advantage over the less holy. Boy, that is really offensive to them. And so those kind of people who are trusting in themselves will always take offense at the gospel. See, if you're pleased with yourself, you will not be pleased with the message of the cross. Because the message of the cross is saying it doesn't matter how good you are, you aren't good enough. Legalism grades a person on their performance. And if you just perform better than other people, well then you can become smug. You can become pleased with yourself. You can get self-righteous. And people who have that attitude will always be offended at the cross. All persecution is always rooted in self-love. This is what Paul is saying. If I was preaching performance, then I wouldn't be offended. I wouldn't be persecuted because I guarantee you his performance could have matched up with anybody. Nobody could have criticized him on the basis of that. But when he goes to preaching that, hey, it's grace and it's only your faith in what God has done for you, then all the religious people who were trusting in themselves came against him with a vengeance. Well, that's an amazing fact. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. You need to meditate on that. Um, I, can, I can guarantee you, in your church, people, if there's strife, if there's divisions, you can write it down that self-love, self-promotion is at the root of it all. That's based on Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. Only by pride comes contention. Also in verse 12, he said, I would they were even cut off which trouble you. 
And I read a number of commentaries on this, and there's some division. Not everybody agrees on what he's talking about. Some people, like, for instance, J.B. Phillips' translation says, I wish those who were so eager to cut your bodies, talking about circumcision, would cut themselves off from you altogether. Some people interpret this phrase to be that way. Other people think that Paul is talking about that if somebody wants you circumcised, I wish they were castrated. Now, that's kind of an extreme uh, interpretation. I honestly don't know which is true. It, Paul has been so strong here in the book of Galatians, it would not be inconsistent with his approach to talking about, man, I mean, him just actually expressing some anger at these religious Judaizers and saying, man, just, you know, if, if they're wanting you circumcised, then I just wish they were castrated. That's very strong, but uh, that wouldn't be inconsistent. Regardless of which way it is, you can say this, that Paul is basically just saying, I wish they were out of the picture. I wish these people were gone. They are nothing but trouble. Get away from them. I believe that that's definitely the message that he's wanting to get across. Then in the 13th verse, this is very important. He's been advocating liberty. That was the subject at the start of this chapter. It's been the whole subject of the thing. We're relating to God based on faith in Jesus. We have liberty. We aren't under a yoke of bondage, etc., etc., etc. But does this mean that we can go out and live in sin? That's a question that always arises. Anytime you ever go to preaching grace and freedom, Somebody's going to say, well, are you just saying we can go live in sin? Boy, Paul deals with this very effectively in these next few verses. You need to really pay attention to this. He says in verse 13, he says, For brethren, we have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So here he is advocating holiness. Now, see, this will show you that Paul is not preaching a freedom to sin. He's preaching freedom from sin. He's not advocating sin any more than the legalistic people were advocating sin. A person who preaches grace and has the proper understanding on it is just as dead set against sin as a legalistic person is. But the legalistic person is saying the reason you should hate sin is because God won't love you if you've got any sin in your life. The person who's preaching grace is saying, no, the reason you should hate sin is because it's an inroad of Satan into your life. God loves you, but you cannot give Satan that freedom. Paul will go on and say this right here in just a few verses. He says, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed one of another. See, it's not that God's going to bring judgment on you, but you get into strife. Maybe God will love you even if you're in strife, but if you get into strife, that other person's liable to get so mad at you, they kill you. You you can still reap negative results from sin, even though God is not bringing his punishment upon it. So Paul is advocating holiness. A person who preaches grace should be advocating holiness. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching them to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Grace teaches us to resist sin. A person who is truly preaching grace the way the Scripture presents it is not advocating sin, but rather they have just changed the motivation. We are not saying that you live holy to be accepted with God. You live holy because you have been accepted with God. And now it's your nature as a Christian to live that way. You want to live that way to glorify God. You want to live in love because you found out that love is superior to strife. You want to live in union with people because you found out that it's so much easier to get along with people than it is to hate them. 
It's it's actually better. I mean, it's not just fear of punishment, rejection from God that causes a Christian to live holy. It's because it's your nature and because it's actually better to be holy than it is to be unholy. It's more fun to be holy than it is to be unholy. Boy, that's powerful. That is life-changing. You know, Paul has been advocating our freedom from all of these things that we are free in Christ, etc. But there, here in this verse, he's saying, only don't use this liberty for an occasion to the flesh. In other words, Paul is identifying that there is still a part of us whose sin can corrupt. Now, I, in my past teaching, I hadn't got time to do all of it here, but I've already established that when a person's born again, their spirit is sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14, and chapter 12, verses 23. So, your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever. But you aren't only a spirit. You also have a soul and a body, and in your part that's called the flesh, you know, you can look over... In Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, and I've got a definition there about exactly what the scripture means by flesh. But the flesh part of us is still susceptible to sin and still can be corrupted by sin, can still be damaged by sin. And so, uh, even though we're free in Christ, we've got to recognize there's a part of us that is still... uh, It's not immune to sin. Sin can devastate it. Sin can literally kill our emotions. It can kill our joy and our peace, etc. And so we need to recognize that we cannot indulge sin in our life. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, don't give occasion to the flesh. There is a part of you that still uh, can revel in sin, that still can enjoy sin. A Christian is not immune from sin. Some people teach that Christians reach a place of sinless perfection where they cannot sin. That's true of your spirit, but you are never only spirit. You also have a soul and a body. And so as far as your experience goes, there is no such thing as being immune from sin. Your flesh can always, always be corrupted through sin. And this is what Paul is referring to. And he says, by love, serve one another. He just talked about not giving place to the flesh. How is it that you do that? I mean, this is wonderful, Paul, to tell us not to walk in the flesh, but how do you keep from doing it? Love is the antidote. You know, if I had time, I've got a three-tape series on love, talking about this very thing, four and a a half hours worth of teaching. I hadn't got time to put all that down, but love is the antidote to sin. Any command that God ever gave in the Word could all be summed up in loving God and loving people. If you love God, you will not curse God. If you love God, you will not go into idolatry. If you love God, you will be humble. If you love God more than you love yourself, you won't be arrogant. You won't be proud. You won't be self-serving, etc. If you love people, you would never steal from somebody that you really love. Love causes you to act in a certain way. And so you could say this, that a person who's a thief is a person that loves himself more than he loves other people. A person who would go commit adultery with a person is a person that loves themselves and their own carnal appetites more than they love the other person. They don't love the person that they are committing adultery with because it defiles them. It brings guilt and condemnation, and so it's not good for them. They don't love their mate. 
If you really loved your mate, you would never go commit adultery on them. You'd never do anything like that to hurt them. You would never steal from a person if you truly love them. You would never lie to a person if you truly love them. And so, just like Jesus said, the whole law can be summed up in loving God and loving your fellow man. And so this is what he's saying here in the last part of this 13th verse. He says, don't give occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. If we would just really get into loving God and loving people, you would find out that that would stop the power of the flesh in your life. The flesh has to be indulged. It has to be fed. It's like a fungus or a leech, some kind of a demonic thing. And if we weren't selfish your flesh would lose its vitality. It would lose its power. You could literally starve it to death. So how do you keep from being selfish? God's kind of love is not selfish. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it lists the characteristics of God's kind of love, in verses 4 through 8, um, it's basically just saying that God's kind of love isn't selfish. God's kind of love is always thinking about another person. True God kind of love is a non-selfish, non-self-centered type of feeling and emotion, commitment, attitude, decision. And so when a person is walking in God's kind of love, you will deny the flesh. In verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, I believe it is. We have that printed as a parallel scripture. And uh, basically, he's just talking about, once again, that love is the antidote to every sexual sin, every uh, sin against people, every sin against God, every sin at all. In verse 15, he says, But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. I referred to this earlier. But see, here's the reason for living holy. A Christian does not have to live holy to be accepted with God. You are accepted with God because of what Jesus did for you and your faith in him. And then it, holiness comes as a byproduct of having that relationship. It's just a byproduct. But then beyond that, you live holy because even though God has now accepted you and you don't have to be holy to have God love you, if you are living an unholy life, let's say, for instance, you're just going around lying about people and sowing strife. Let's say that you go around and commit adultery with different people. Let's say that you go around and you steal from people and things like that. Even though you're forgiven and even though God would forgive you and that you could still be loved by God, people are going to get mad at you. You're going to suffer, possibly to the point of even death or a beating or something like that. So see, here's what he's saying. He says, but if you're biting and devouring one another, he says, sure, maybe you are free and now you have liberty that you don't have to perform to have God accept you. But uh, if you go around in strife, you are going to be consumed one of another. So see, it's not just God's judgment upon sin that was an issue. It was Satan's inroad into your life through sin, the way other people came against you. I've used this expression before, but it's like a vertical and a horizontal effect of sin. The vertical effect is God's judgment, the offense that sin was against God. Through Jesus, that vertical relationship has been totally, totally wiped out. Your sin, past, present, and even future tense, is not an issue with God. God loves you because he is love, not because you are lovely. 
He has chosen to love you, and the thing that makes it able makes him able to do that is Jesus. Jesus paid for your sins. So God is not dealing with you based on your sin. But you still have this horizontal effect of sin. You still have sin uh, is an inroad of Satan into your life. People will deal with you according to your sins. So even though the vertical effect, the relationship against God has been taken care of, there still is a vertical effect, or excuse me, a horizontal effect here on this earth. If you go out and live in strife, Satan is going to get you through people. He's going to come against you, and you are not going to prosper. So see, this is what Paul is mentioning here. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Again, Paul is advocating. He's admonishing people towards holiness, but with a different motivation, not so that God will accept them. That's done by faith in what Jesus has done. But you need to live holy so that people won't come at you, so that you aren't going to offend people, so that Satan won't be able to come through, come at you through people. In verse 16, he says, I, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Boy, this is awesome. I could spend hours and hours and hours here on just the next couple of verses. I'm probably not going to be able to finish this chapter just because there's so much material here in this fifth chapter, but I haven't got the time to devote to this that I'd really like to, but this is powerful. Paul is saying some things here that are exactly opposite the way most people think. When he's talking about walking in the Spirit, uh, the Greek word that is used here for walk... I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it, but it means to tread all around. That is, walk at large, or figuratively, it means to live, deport oneself, follow. And the figurative meaning is what he's talking about here. He's talking about uh, to live in a certain manner, to deport oneself or to follow. So when he's talking about walk in the Spirit, he's saying to live by the Spirit, to follow the Spirit. And so here, when he's talking about walking in the Spirit, what does this mean? We understand that walking in the Spirit is the key to overcoming the flesh. That's what he's talking about. But what does that mean? It's become a religious cliche. Well, I really believe this, that the Bible says that the Spirit is truth, 1 John 5, 6. And it says that God's Word is truth, John 17, 17. It says that the Word of God is spirit and in truth. That's Jesus speaking in John 6, 63. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one, 1 John 5, 7. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us in John chapter 1. All of this is saying that the Word and the Spirit are the same thing. I believe that when a person is walking in the Word of God, and not a legalistic interpretation of it, but I mean the true spirit and intent of the Word, quickened by the Holy Spirit, when a person is walking in the Word, they're walking in the Spirit. Now, that makes it very simple to me. That makes it doable. For instance, the Word of God tells you that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. So when you're walking in love with your neighbor, then you are walking in the Spirit. Now, I think this is important because I've seen some people that to them, walking in the Spirit was being spooky. It was being weird. It, I have actually was in a Bible study one time where people had been exposed to someone who they thought was just wonderful, and they mimicked their every action. I mean the women, when they praised, they'd all put their hands together like they were praying, and then they would all hold their hand in a certain way, and they thought that was being in the Spirit. It doesn't matter how you fold your hands. It doesn't matter how you lift your hands. It doesn't matter if you say hallelujah 
or hallelujah. It doesn't matter if your hair is piled up on your head or whether it's down, whether it's long or it's short. It doesn't matter if you can uh, jump a pew or do any of these kind of things. If you're violating what the Word of God says, you are not walking in the Spirit. The Spirit of God will lead you into the Word of God. They are the same. They will not violate each other. So to me, walking in the Spirit is just very simple. It's do what the Word says. The Word says to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. So, but that's telling me to walk in love with people the same way that God's walked in love with me. If I'm doing that, then I'm in the Spirit. doesn't matter whether I'm wearing a suit. doesn't matter if I've got my eyes closed. doesn't matter the position that I'm in. If I'm loving people from a real, genuine heart in the same way that God has loved me, I'm walking in the Spirit. And it doesn't matter how I smile or what I'm saying, but if I am not loving people, then I am not walking in the Spirit. If I'm doing what the Word says, I'm in the Spirit. If I'm not doing what the Word says, I'm not in the Spirit. Now, that needs a little interpretation, is that it has to be according to the revealed Word. I do believe that there are some people who are brand new believers and are really in all varying stages of their Christian development who are doing what they know. They are walking in the total revelation that they've got, and I believe that that puts them in the Spirit, even though they may have some gaping holes in their life. Like I was just talking with some people at lunch today about an experience where a woman stood up in one of my meetings and was testifying about how wonderful it was to be born again. She'd only been born again two months, and she was just using profanity every other sentence. And she was cussing, and I mean, people were reacting, and she could tell something was happening. She looked at me, and she says, am I saying something wrong? And she had come from a totally pagan background. And to her, the way she was talking was not profanity. It was just normal conversation. Now, she will eventually grow through that and recognize that, you know, she needs to refine that. But I believe that that woman was in the spirit, even though she was standing up there using profanity, because to her, it hadn't it hadn't dawned on her yet. She hadn't perceived it. It had become so accustomed to her that that wasn't something that she had gotten revealed yet. She will. I've seen people before when they first got born again that were still dressing in manners that were really not a godly manner. I don't believe according to Scripture. But within just a very short period of time, they were uh, they changed. But until that became a revelation to them, you know, I believe that they were following the leading and they were walking in the word that they knew and they were sincere. They weren't rejecting anything. There wasn't anything that they were willingly ignorant of. I mean, they were seeking God. It's just that you can't get your whole mind renewed all at once. It's a process. And so I need to put that qualification on it. I, nobody's going to totally do everything that's in the Word. But I'm saying when a person sincerely is doing everything that they know to do, then it's like it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, When we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sins. I believe that that's talking about when we're walking in the revelation that God has given us sincerely and purely the way that Jesus has, you know, to the best of our ability, then anything else that we are not aware of, the blood of Jesus is cleansing us from that. Yeah, even though we may be doing things wrong, if we're sincere, if we're naive in that, God is cleansing us from it. That doesn't mean that we don't need to be concerned and grow and learn and continue to improve because even though God's forgiven us, people may not be. And you may offend people and you may reap some of the negative effects, but God is forgiven us. 
And so uh, walking in the Spirit, I believe, is just basically walking in true revelation knowledge of what God's Word is saying as the Holy Spirit quickens, quickens it to you. He goes on to say here that when you walk in the Spirit, notice that you have to walk in the Spirit, the deliverance from sin and the power of sin and the power of the devil is not in yourself. This didn't say walk in your integrity. Now, you might be able to make a point for that, but that's not what this verse is saying. He's saying walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Deliverance from sin and Satan does not lie within ourself. It comes directly from God. And this is one of the real uh, marks of distinction between true Christianity and just other religions. Other religions preach morality. Other religions preach that there is a true God and that we need to be good and relate to him based on how good we are. And they're trying to tell people to do good things. Matter of fact, most of the religions of the world would agree with the basic outcome of Christian morality, walking in love with people, etc. But one of the major differences is they tell you how you're supposed to be, and then the burden is on you to do it. True Christianity accepts the fact that I cannot save myself, I cannot walk in love with other people, that the Christian life isn't just hard to live, it's impossible to live. True Christianity is humbling ourselves and letting God just flow through us and transform us. In other words, it's His Spirit living through us. Christianity is the only true religion where God literally empowers us with Himself, with His own ability to live up to His standards. In any other method of religion, it's always you do this. And it becomes very frustrating. It becomes very burdensome. And it becomes like Paul was talking about here in the first part of the chapter. It's a yoke of bondage. Nobody can live under it. Religion will kill people. Religion will make you sad and morose. I guarantee you, it'll defeat you. Religion can kill you. But true Christianity isn't a changed life. It's an exchanged life. It's not you just trying to do better, you with a better understanding and a better motivation. No, it's literally like Paul said in Galatians 2.20. It's Christ in you. It's the Lord actually living through you. What a difference. Praise God. You know, also, I'm running very short of time. I'm just going to have to introduce this, and then we'll get on this next time, and I'll go into this in more detail. But this verse is really powerful if you see what it says and not what it doesn't say. Most people take this verse, and what they think it's saying is that if I'd quit walking in the flesh, then I'd get in the Spirit. Then the Spirit of God would flow through me. That is not what this verse is saying. It's saying just the opposite of that. It's saying that when you walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You cannot get rid of the power and the influence of the flesh in your life by yourself, and then the Spirit comes. No, it's just the opposite. You have to appropriate the Spirit in your life and begin to start having the Holy Spirit flow through you in His power and in His anointing so that you can break the power and the dominion of the flesh. Now, do you see the difference? Boy, what a radical difference. Much of religion, much of quote-unquote Christian religion, there's a tremendous amount of false stuff that is calling themselves Christian. It's not true Christianity. But the, the false segment of the Christian movement 
actually preaches that if you will just clean up your life and if you will be holy and if you will do this, then God will come in your life. And that is wrong, wrong, wrong. The truth is that you can't clean up your life on your own. If you could straighten yourself up and become holy on your own, you wouldn't need God. The truth is that you appropriate God's power while your flesh is still giving you problems, while you still are having sin and problems and thoughts and and emotions that are contrary to God's Word. You have to, by faith, reach out and receive the intervention of God's Spirit as a gift. And then, and only then, when you are in the Spirit, can you break the dominion of the flesh. Boy, that is an important difference. You know, to help you understand this, if you were to try and get the darkness out of a room so that the light could come, everybody would recognize that's not the way you do it. You can't shovel darkness out of a room. You can't extract darkness. There's no way to grab hold of it. You can't do that. The way you get rid of darkness is by turning on the light. When the light comes, the darkness leaves. But you can't get light to come by darkness leaving. Well, in the same way, you can't get the spirit to come by having the flesh leave. It doesn't work that way. But when you have the spirit come, then the flesh leaves as a byproduct. Boy, that's a radical difference. I just feel in my heart, once I've seen that, it is so exciting to me. It's life-changing to me. This is one of the foundation truths that has revolutionized my life. And once I see it, it's so easy to grab hold of. It's so simple. But until a person really gets a spiritual revelation of this, it's just so hard for them to understand this. Most people think, but I couldn't. God couldn't bless me as long as I've got problems in my life. And so you're going to try and get rid of the problems so that the blessing will come. It's the blessing of God that breaks those problems, that gives you power to overcome the flesh. This thinking that I have to clean up my life first, and then God is going to flow through me is wrong. It's no. God has to be flowing through you to clean up your life. You cannot clean it up on your own. You cannot save yourself. You are not your own Savior. This verse is not saying that if you will get out of the flesh, then the Spirit, you'll be in the Spirit. No, it's saying if you will get into the Spirit, you will be out of the flesh. The radical difference. It's subtle for a person that hasn't really seen it. You may not have gotten that, but that is a radical, radical point. And in the next few verses, he just expounds on this. I haven't got time on this tape to do that. We'll take up right here in Galatians chapter 5. We'll go back and review a little bit of this, comment on verse 16, and then we'll go on to verse 17 on our next tape. I encourage you to really pray about this. This is, if, you, if you're understanding what I'm saying, I guarantee you this will put you in a very, very select group of Christians. I believe that very few Christians have a revelation of this. And yet, to me, it's a key. This is the real point that Paul is making here in the book of Galatians. So this is just imperative. You know, in between now and the next month, when you get the next tape... Go back over these scriptures in Galatians. Study them for yourself. Maybe listen to this tape maybe another time. Read these footnotes. Meditate on it until this begins to start being some revelation to you. And I promise you, if you can get hold of this, it will change your life.